One of the best parts of interviewing exceptional women is when you get the chance to reconnect with someone you've interviewed in the past. And that's the case for this episode of The Story Behind Her Success. Hi, it's Candy O'Terry. In the spotlight, a woman whose accomplishments are so vast, they simply fall off the table. She is a champion for underserved children and families. She has been the president and CEO of the Home for Little Wanderers, which is the nation's oldest child welfare agency. She also ran the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. She was the director of operations for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, ABCD Head Start, and even served as the temporary chief of staff for former Governor Deval Patrick. She holds eight honorary degrees. And she's a force of nature. She's a role model for so many people, including me. Most of all, she's just a stellar human being. Her name is Joan Wallace Benjamin, and this is her story. Joan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Candy. The last time we sat down together was about 15 years ago, and your career continues to evolve. You're an executive coach now. Tell me all about your coaching practice. I worked professionally for 37 years, 27 of which I was a CEO. So when I retired in 2018, I said, well, you know, what could I do? I'm not going back onto a full-time job, but, you know, I have some things I could offer. So I decided to launch this executive coaching practice. My kind of niche are men and women of color who are kind of making the transition from director into the C-suite. You know, they're in that journey. So often women and people of color falter when they make that big jump from middle management into senior management. And then I also coach new uh, nonprofit CEOs because I had been one of those for so many years. Just thought I had a lot to offer. So I love it. It's wonderful. I have wonderful people that I'm working with. And I appreciate the fact that they seek my guidance and that I'm able to provide it. I am holding your new book. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Leading a Life of Balance, Principles of Leadership from the Executive Suite to the Family Table. Congratulations. How long did it take to write this gorgeous book? So it took about eight months, I think, after many, many years of thinking about writing a book. And so I remember throughout my career, stories and situations would happen and things that I dealt with and grappled with and would say to myself, you know what, that's a chapter in the book one day. And so when I finally retired and was able to sit And, you know, kind of think about what the career had been like, what had my 37 years been. I said, you know, I have some interesting things to say. So I sat down and I started writing. Leading a life of balance. I remember when I first got started interviewing women, one of my favorite questions was always, how do you balance the whole thing? So my question for you as an expert is, is there any such thing as leading a life of balance? Yes, there is actually. And it took having done it for 37 years to then be able to write about it. Because at the time I was living it, my husband and I were just putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get through the day, the week, the month, and keep a robust and happy family life going. At the same time, he and I both had pretty responsible positions in the community. We were both CEOs of our organizations. And so we kind of just invented necessities, the mother of invention. I mean, that really is true. You kind of invent ways to survive it all and processes that you put in place with your family so that you can balance it. Um, I've worked full time since my children were born. I never, with the exception of five months of maternity leave, I never really ever was home and always envisioned a full time professional life and a family. So yes, you can have balance. You have to think through some things. You have to decide what's most important. Uh, And I think a very important part of it is how to integrate your family life and the experience with your family and your children and husband into your work. 
You know, I think leaders lead more fully when they take as their first priority their own children and families. And they lead teams more effectively when they allow the team members to also see the importance of their own families and maintaining balance between work and family. How did you take care of yourself with all the big jobs that you had? You must have said, I got to put myself on my own list, right? Yeah, I kind of did. You know, I don't can't tell you that I consciously remember how I did that exactly. I mean, I had a wonderful partner in my husband. So he and I, you know, took that big list and we divvied it and split it up in half. And he took half and I took half. And then we would sometimes switch what we had on our list with one another. But, you know, I, I say and talk about in the book the importance of having a spouse, a partner, you know, whoever your main person is, really envision the same life that you envision. I talk to young people all the time, you know, young women who say, oh, I'm just so in love with this guy. Oh, okay, that's great. <laughs> and, and that's a wonderful prerequisite. But, you know, does he want a family? Does he think it's okay that you're working? How does he support your career? And what does he think about women in the workplace? I mean, those are the things that once you're married, they don't change. You need to know up front when you're dating what that's all about. And so I say, spend time thinking wisely and choosing wisely the person who you want to spend your life with. How important has it been for you? We know that your husband has been your guy. He's been with you on this path forever. But let's talk about the sisterhood of women. Okay. How important has it been for you to bring other women along and then have other women take you under their wing? Well, it's been very important. And I think certainly in my role at the Urban League and when I was the president of the Home for Little Wanderers, you know, a, an organization largely staffed by social workers who largely tend to be female. There were lots of young women who sought my guidance, looked to my leadership as a model and was able to help them. But the interesting thing is, you know, Candy, I'm 67 years old. so And it, you look great. Oh, thank you very much. But so at the time, though, that I was coming up, my mentors were men. There were not that many women that were in uh, executive leadership positions in the public, private, nonprofit or government sector, frankly, to reach to. So it turns out I have three very distinct men who were my mentors, wonderful people who thought I could do anything, um, who offered their, you know, their shoulder, their guidance, uh, their support. Um, so I don't know necessarily that mentors have to be of the same gender because I had three successful uh, mentor relationships. But no, women have sought me out over the years. I've done all that I can do to help push them along and sort of give them you know, just some little nuggets of information about how to survive it. Because there were so many years that I was the only woman in the room when I walked into a room. And even more times, I was the only person of color, male or female, walking into the room. So I know what it feels like to kind of be in a situation of some isolation and just wondering, hmm, I think I belong here. Do I belong here? Yes, I belong here. And so I think it's very important that women have the kind of confidence they need to be in those situations. You know, you talk about being the only woman to walk into the room very often, and in particular, to be the only woman of color walking into the room. I'm thinking of these big boardrooms. I'm thinking of being the chief of staff for Deval Patrick. How did you claim your space? I believe, and I talk a lot about this in the book, um, that confidence is the fuel of development. You know, the more confident you are, the harder you work, the better and stronger you get. Ah, the more confident you are, the more harder you work, the better you get. So confidence, if you can find a way to build confidence into yourself by engaging in this kind of process of hard work and development, 
um, you can lead. I don't know any leader that's not a confident person. So I think what my guidance would be is try and become confident first <laughs> and work on your confidence from the earliest. And parents should work on confidence, particularly for their daughters from very the very, very earliest age where your girl knows, you know what, you're the smartest one sitting around here, you know, and you're kind of cute too. And you can do anything you put your mind to if you're willing to work hard enough at it. So those kinds of messages constantly in a conscious way and in a subliminal way makes an impact. And so as women grow, their confidence is there and they assume the leadership. Wisdom is a great gift and we get it through experience and you've shared 37 years that you've been at this. Let's go back to the beginning of even before you started your career. You went to Wellesley College. I did. Tell us what that experience was like. And by the way, I hear they just gave you a big award. Congratulations for that. Thank you very, very much. I'm going to guess you were one of the only women of color in that college when you showed up. Absolutely not. So I'm going to surprise you with the answer. So if you remember now, I went to college, started in 1971. In the early 70s, 60s and 70s, the... Uh, There were big universities, of course, but the smaller colleges were either all male or all female. Harvard was male. Radcliffe was female. Columbia was male. Barnard was female. Williams was not co-ed. Smith was female. Wesley was female. So you really, the choices you had were in a lot of ways, unless you were in a bigger university, single sex institutions to pick from. And so in those days, there were the seven sisters, as they were called. These were all this kind of small Ivy League type colleges that were single sex and that were female. And I picked Wellesley. Why? I picked Wellesley because the campus is just exquisite. It was right outside the city of Boston. And I had never been to Boston before. And so I picked a single sex institution. It was the most wonderful four years. I loved being at Wellesley. I met so many brilliant women, almost to the point that the women at Wellesley were so smart that when I finally graduated, I knew I could compete with anybody. You know what I mean? It didn't matter, male, female. I was like, hey, these women are really smart. And I was able to hold my own and do my thing at Wellesley. And so I knew that I could compete at the highest level with anyone, male or female. When you got to the school, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Or did you discover that along the way? No, I did not know what I wanted to do with my life. I did know, certainly by the time I was a junior and senior, that I wanted to do work at a community-based level that I felt so blessed as a, I call, you know, I call myself an African-American female civil rights beneficiary because I and others like myself in the 70s were beneficiaries of the civil rights movement. We were able to go to places like Wellesley and Smith and all the men to Dartmouth, my brother to Yale because of affirmative action and because of the civil rights movement. So I felt like, you know, I am so blessed with some of the best education money can buy, really. And I ought to be able to bring those skills and talents back into communities of color. So I've always been working at the community-based level with people who are living in vulnerable circumstances, and in most instances, children and families. And that brings me to my next question. Let's start about your focus on women and children and underserved children in particular. How did you find that path? I was a psychology major at Wellesley and so wanted to work in community mental health. And so most organizations that are doing delivering community mental health services are delivering them to children and to families. So my first big job out of graduate school was as the deputy director for Boston's Head Start program. 
which had 1,018 kids in the program citywide across the city of Boston. Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston is children and families. Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts is children and families. And certainly the Home for Little Wanderers uh, was children and families. So it just turns out that community-based service delivery is often service delivery surrounding children and their families because that's the constituency of people who are being served at the community-based level. So that's kind of how I, when I went from one place to the other, all serving similar populations of people. As you went from one organization to the other, was there a moment when you felt like, aha, I can lead this kind of organization. I know how to do this. Or did someone take you on and say, hey, you're really good at that. I'm interested to see how that happened for you. Well, I think what happened was I reached a level of readiness. So when I was at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, I was the director of program operations. There was a CEO, there was a CFO, and there was the head of development. So we were the four-person senior team. Um, And I knew, given the work that I was doing there, that I was responsible for the operations of the organization, had quite a number of expansion responsibilities to to pull off. I engaged quite a bit with the board at great length. And I also was involved in the funding community because I ended up being the mouthpiece and the person who could articulate to people what the Boys and Girls Cubs was all, all about. So I think at the end of four years of being there, you know, I kind of said to myself, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I didn't have a specific next perch in mind, but I knew I could do it. And so when the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts came, tapped up my door and said, you know, we're looking for a new CEO. What do you think? I was at a level of readiness. I had the experience and I had the confidence and said, you know, yes, I can come run this. Children need a voice and they need an advocate. And that has been you for children here in Boston and Massachusetts at large. When I first met you, we started our friendship when you were running the Home for Little Wanderers. What is your message, even now from where you sit, about underserved children in our society? How do we fix this systemic problem? The biggest question for me is, like, how did we get here to the point where we're not doing that? I mean, I just don't understand how all of us that are adults know what it takes to to be and become a successful adult. For those of us that have the wherewithal, we know what we need to do for our own children so that they're able to be a successful adult. And so I find it kind of incredulous, actually, that the political will is not there in abundance to provide all of what we know is needed. We don't need to study another thing. There doesn't need to be another research paper written about how to develop kids and their families and how to make sure that everyone in America lives, has a livable wage, and every child is educated to their full capacity. I mean, it's just, you know, we have all the language and we have all the understanding, but for some reason, the nation continues to fight around this allocation of resources of who should get and who should not get. When you were running the Home for Little Wanderers, how many children were under your care? So we served about 7,500 children and families a year. You once told me, we're not looking for adults to run a 50-yard dash with these children. We're looking for an adult who's going to run the marathon. The kinds of problems we're trying to solve, the kinds of challenges that communities have and that families and people have are long-term fixes. They are not an immediate, and, and you know, even, even throwing a big dollar at it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So it just, it requires consistent, dedicated 
slog day after day around what you're trying to achieve. And with each step, we move closer and closer to what we we want. Now, the reality is over time, the target moves further out. <laughs> so you're still kind of striving a distance to get to the end point. But yeah, no, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Temporary chief of staff for Governor Deval Patrick, who was kind enough to write a nice yeah, note about your beautiful book. What skills did you use the most in that job? Okay, so I was there for the first three months of the transition. And remember, that's before the, the governor's elected, but before he's inaugurated. And then the first hundred days. And so my primary job, as the governor had, had defined it, was to set up the governor's office and get kind of government open and ready to function once we moved into the state house. So I think the skills I used the most were some of my executive leadership skills, uh, hiring people, making assessments about what the team needed to look like. The governor was very clear about the kind of people he was looking for, the kind of environment and tenor that he wanted his administration to have people who were able to cooperate with one another, collaborate with one another, could work as a team, that we had big issues in the Commonwealth to be solved and you couldn't do it if everybody was off sort of on their own island. So I knew all of those prerequisites kind of to what we were trying to achieve. And so I think that was one of my greatest strengths. Let's take a moment and just go back to your childhood. Tell me a little bit about your family. Well, I grew up with both of my parents, my mother and my father and a younger brother. And my mother was a public school teacher, you know, so I jokingly, I talk about in the book how for the first six years of my life in school, I was Miss Wallace's daughter. I don't think anybody knew what my first name was and no one knew my brother's first name. My father was a public health executive in New York City. He had gone to college on the GI Bill and had been a Tuskegee Airman during World War II. Wow. You know, so I had two parents who were, you know, striving, who came out of working class, poor families. Both of my grandmothers were domestic workers for, you know, wealthy white people down in midtown Manhattan. My grandfather was a cook for Horn and Hearted Automat, for those people who remember the Horn and Hearted Automat on 72nd Street in Manhattan. And my other grandfather was a mail carrier. So I'm a product of a family who went from the working poor to the middle class and the upper middle class over the course of three or four generations. We were all very close. I lived in New York City. I lived in the borough of Queens, but my grandparents were in Harlem, New York. Every weekend, Saturdays and Sundays were spent in Harlem. So I kind of see myself as a Manhattan girl almost as much as I do a Queens girl. I came from a large extended family. So Sunday dinners and Saturday events were with, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, my cousins. We were all very nearby, which by contrast, really contrasts to the way my boys were raised with nobody nearby. My family and my husband's family remained in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And we kind of were up here as a couple raising our boys without the same kind of family support around them that I had around myself growing up. Who were your role models when you were growing up? Well, my mother was a really big role model. She stayed home for the first six years I was born. I don't really remember those years as much. So from the time I could really remember and I was in school, she was a school teacher. And my mother would get up every morning, put on her Sunday best, as they used to call it, you know, just exquisite, walking out the door to teach her then in the beginning fourth grade class, classes of immigrant children who were just coming to New York from Puerto Rico. Um, and so my mother did not speak Spanish and her children did and the parents didn't speak any English, but she was able to educate and really run a class. So she, I, you know, I watched her 
get up every morning, go to work, come home, put the bacon in the frying pan, fry it up and serve it for dinner. I <laughs> That's mean, right. You know, and she made dinner every night and we had a homemade dessert every night and she worked all day. I mean, it was, she, I never ever envisioned doing it much differently than that. I mean, that was my model that I always was gonna work because I always felt like I had something to contribute. And I cooked dinner every night and my four of us, my two sons and my husband, and I, we sit down, we would sit down at dinner all the time. When they got a little older, we're playing after school sports. The schedule got a little off, but we had dinner as four people every night. I made dessert every night after dinner. <laughs> chip off the old block. Yeah, I was a chip off the old block. I really was. I really was. So, so she was a big part of, um, and, and my husband kind of models much after my dad. Um, my father was still alive when we were first married. And, you know, my father and mom took the list and divvied it up and they, they banged through it um, as partners and, you know, would have been married, I don't know, 60 something years by now if my father hadn't died. But, you know, so I, I was used to being in a family where the marriage was strong and happy and we had a nice little nuclear family. Let's talk a little bit about when you became a mom. How did motherhood change you, Joan? It honed my ability to prioritize, <laughs> you know, and, you know, the expression, don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, you just sort of decide what's important. What do you want your kids to know? What are the experiences you want them to have? And then you just build the lifestyle around it. I don't think it changed me. It just focused. It focused who I was and how time should be spent. And, you know, Ben and I consciously decided that we were not going to invest more time in work at the expense of the family. So in the book, I talk about this life in balance. I mean, you have to figure out how to balance your children and your family life with your job. And it you know, sounds trite, but you know, your family's forever. These jobs come and go. And so you have to make your family your top priority. I, there's a, I mentioned in the book, a Congolese saying that a single bracelet does not jingle. And if you think about what that says, that's absolutely true. And, and so my contention is that you need to make your family, your children, your husband, your cousins, your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, everyone in your family are the bracelets that help you jingle. And when you have that jingle, you're able to lead much more fully because you have all of the people that you care and love most on your arm. And they are the ones that create the strength and fortitude and you know, sustenance that you need to to go through you know a life that's pretty complex with a lot of moving pieces all the time the book is a memoir it's also a book about mentorship and leadership it's called leading a life in balance and the subtitle is principles of leadership from the executive suite to the family table the author is today's guest joan wallace benjamin phd <laughs> and congratulations on all of that you know i Thank mentioned you. early on in the interview the amount of awards that you've received oh, yeah. oh for goodness sake <laughs> they could just fall off the table when an obstacle is in your path how do you get around it jump over it jump over it and i think the confidence when it's there gives you what you need to create the strategy to go around it or jump over it or go under it or whatever, but you gotta get by it. And so I do not believe that you stop when people put barriers in your way. Instead, you just, you say to yourself, this doesn't need to be here, this should not be here. This is not right that this barrier is here. And so with the confidence, you're able to develop the strategies you need to walk around it, fly over it, dig under it, whatever's necessary. 
you are in a place where you can pass along your wisdom to others. What do you wish you knew, Joan, when you first got started? When I got started, I was not as patient as I learned how to become. That I wanted things, you know, I knew what I wanted. I wanted it done. I wanted it now. And I wanted everybody else to hop to (laughs) and to keep pace with, you know, the pace I was setting. And, you know, I remember for years, my mother would say, Joan, you know, everyone doesn't walk as fast, talk as fast as you do. That's just that's just how that is. You need to figure out how you're going to slow up enough to bring people along with you or to be able to follow them as well as lead them. So I just had to develop patience and understand, you know, kind of human behavior and that people move just like children learn in different ways at different paces. So do adults, actually. You've had the role of CEO many, many times. What is your definition of leadership? The ability to create a context and an environment and a culture around you and the people that surround you that enables you both to set a course forward and people follow you, but also to be able to be led by others as well. I mean, I think the best leaders are good followers. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received, Joan? And can you share that with our listeners all around the world? Well, one of the pieces of advice that I got from my father many, many years ago is that good money doesn't make a bad job good. And so I would say, I said to myself, and I would say to others, to young people, people around the world, you know, don't just chase the money that, you know, you can have a job that pays you a wonderful salary. And is, but if it doesn't, motivate you, if it doesn't kind of float your boat, if it doesn't get you up bouncing and heading out the door every morning, don't do it. And it doesn't really matter what it pays you. I think I decided a long time ago that I'm a mission girl, that I do my best work in organizations and with endeavors that have mission are driven by the mission. Final question. And Joan, I want to thank you so much for oh, coming this. here to thank my you. house. And it's, it's been so long and, and you has. look great. Oh, and you're such so an beautiful. inspiration to me, honestly. I'm thank so you. grateful for your friendship. At this moment, Joan Wallace-Benjamin, in your life, what does success mean to you? Well, I think success means to me that I now look at myself at 67 years old. And I am very happy, very satisfied and very content with the way I've lived my life. Women always want to know, can I have it all? You know, I, you know, I want a career, I want a family, I want this, I want that. You know, and I have to fairly say, yes, I do think women can have it all. They just can't have it all at the same time. Think of it in terms of the journey is the fun part. Enjoy the steps, because as I think about it now, I mean, that family life, the young life of your children, it goes by so quickly. Um, and you, you wake up one morning and say, wow, my kids are grown, you know, I'm the age I am. And it went by really, really fast. So I just think if you want to slow down a little bit, you know, smell the roses, so to speak, and, and appreciate the steps that are required to get to where you ultimately would like to be. Joan Wallace Benjamin, thank you so much for your friendship. Thanks for coming thank today. Thank you so much. I so thank you for it. being this week's guest on the story behind her success. Great. Thank you. If you know someone that I should interview, reach out anytime. Tell me about her. Candy at CandyOterry.com. And thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success. What's your story?